Well, no doubt you have heard it said, ignorance is bliss. And we understand what that means, don't we? That sometimes we just rather not know. We might rather not know all the ingredients that have gone into the bolognese. I certainly try and keep some of the ingredients away from the kids. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like this. If they don't know, then they won't complain. Ignorance sometimes is bliss. But I think largely speaking, if we're to assess our entire lives, our entire existence, we want to be people who know, don't we? We don't like to be in the dark. We don't like secrets being kept from us. We don't like only grasping things in part. We want to know the truth. Think back to your childhoods, your presenthoods, I should say to some of you. Um, it's nearing Christmas. You want to know what presents grandma and granddad have bought you, don't you? You want to know whether they've listened to what mam and dad have passed down the chain, passed down the line, and whether they've got you the game that you want, or the magazine that you want, or the book that you want. I'm sure of us who are longer in the tooth will remember hunting around various places, maybe just on Christmas Eve, trying to poke through little bits of tape on the edges of wrapped presents. What is it? What is it? What is it? Because we don't like not knowing. Even though it's going to be a wonderful surprise and we'll be filled with joy when we open it, we do know that thirst, that hunger to know is in each and every one of us. And we read together this evening two passages which display two very different means, two very different modes of trying to find knowledge, to trying to find and to discern what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. Two very different stories of how people have chased after wisdom and the results that flowed from them. Did you recognize that in the two readings? The first from Genesis chapter 3, often known as the fall story, was an opportunity for Adam, for Eve, to trust in God. To trust in God that he is one from whom or to whom they could go in order to receive wisdom, in order to receive instruction, in order to receive some sort of understanding of what is right and good and proper in this world. But there were more voices in their lives than just God's, weren't there? God had said, you shall eat from any tree of the garden except that one tree. But there were more voices. There was the serpent the crafty one, the one who was wisest amongst all of the animals, who called into question God's clear command, God's clear instructions. There was the other voice, the internal voice, that spoke to Eve and said, well, yes, why not? Why shouldn't I take that which looks so good? If I want wisdom, because that's what it says in the text, she saw that it was good food, it was pleasant to the eye, and it was useful for obtaining wisdom. If I want that, if I desire that, if God desires that for me, then why shouldn't I take it and grasp it myself? It's a story of following our own voices or the voices of those around us as opposed to God's voice. And the consequences are, well, as they say, the rest is history, the fall. What falls out of that decision to pursue knowledge and wisdom and understanding on a, on a road, presumably, to a full and flourishing life, what falls out of that decision is death. 
sadness, sorrow, brokenness in our world, fracture rather than fullness. Contrast that to the story of Solomon. Solomon, a young man in a high lofty position, a young man with a great weight of responsibility on his shoulders, a young man with a history behind him, a legacy to carry on, is presented with this opportunity from God. Ask from me whatever you want and I will give it to you. What does Solomon do? Solomon, showing some great humility, realizes that he is not wise. Solomon, with great self-awareness, realizes that the task that stands before him of leading the people and leading the people well is way, way beyond him. And so he asks God for the same thing that Adam and Eve were seeking after in the garden. He asks God for wisdom. Now you can imagine Solomon still had all those advisors around him from David's time. Those who had experienced the, the inception of the monarchy. The glory days of the monarchy, the expansion of the kingdom, the, the final um, um, coalescing of the nation of Israel, free from its enemies uh, as far as all of its borders. There, willing, prepared, eager, keen to speak wisdom into his life and into his reign. You can imagine, as with most young men, Solomon probably actually had plenty of his own ideas. We see it very quickly in the, in the generations to come of man after man who thinks that they know what's best. They know what's best in this situation. They know how to rule best for their own profit and for their own uh, fullness. Solomon, with amazing humility and insight, says to God, I don't know what I'm doing. Only you can make me wise. Now stop. Compare and contrast those two stories. You have one with all the consequences of seeking to grasp knowledge, to grasp wisdom, to understand how life can be lived to the fullest, but God is ignored. God is taken out of the picture. And then you have the story of Solomon, where desiring not just fullness of life for himself, but fullness of life for all those around him, he comes to God and says, you teach me how to be wise. You teach me what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what will lead these people to life rather than lead them to death. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the acknowledgement, the presence of God in their understanding of reality. Eve and Adam conceived of a world where God needn't be. We've gone so much further in our culture, haven't we? Where, where very often people will say God simply isn't. That the real world is not a world that is ruled and reigned by any sort of spiritual being. That there is no God and all that's left is for us to make up our own minds and to go our own way. Solomon, on the other hand, wanted to understand life as it truly is. Life lived under God. It isn't any wonder then that when we come to the book of Proverbs, 
often understood to be the passing on of so much of the wisdom that God had given Solomon, one of the first statements that is made is this, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding and discernment, of of knowing how life is supposed to go, is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Now that sometimes is a quite a, a confusing concept because we've got a very narrow understanding of what fear is. We think of fear as in that flight response we get when we spot a spider on the end of the bathtub or when, um, oh, I'm, what time is it? Can I, this is a bit PG. No, um, the, the, the fear response I get when I hear the sound of the cat being sick in the next room and just know what I'm going to find and face when I get in there and have to tidy up. That's what we think of, of, about a fear, of an unpleasant thing, a scary thing, a thing that needs to be avoided because because otherwise it'll rob us of life. Darkness, um, waves, water out there on the sea, scary things like that. Clowns. You afraid of clowns? Yeah, they're odd they're odd no one's getting away from that but that's not what's being described in the scriptures when we read about the fear of the lord i heard a wonderful illustration from john who passes with me in amford he put it like this that the fear of the lord is more like when somebody finally gets the chance to meet their hero someone who you've looked up to all your life someone you appreciate, someone that you hold in such high esteem that the thought of meeting them, especially the thought of maybe saying something silly or daft or wrong in front of them or conducting your way yourself in a fashion that isn't appropriate in their presence, gets you a little bit nervous. Sort of makes your mouth very dry and your hands very moist. It's a weird combination that, isn't it? He said that there's a story about uh, Christopher Lee I think that's the name of the actor who played Saruman in the Lord of the Ring films. Well, apparently, growing up, he was a huge, huge fan of Tolkien. Tolkien is the man who wrote the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and other things. And apparently, Christopher Lee was a massive fan of this author. And as he was walking down the streets one day, he bumped into him and he recognized him. And he was just overcome with fear. Not because he thought Tolkien was dangerous... Not because he thought Tolkien was going to quiz him and if he got something wrong that he was going to you know, chastise him, but because he revered him so much, because he held him in such high esteem, because he was in awe of this author who had crafted a world that Christopher Lee loved to inhabit in reading in his mind. He was afraid in that sense. There was the fear of Tolkien in him. And that's more what it's like when we come to the scriptures and we read something like this from the, uh, the pen of Solomon, that the beginning of really knowing what life is all about, of wisdom, of discernment, is the fear of the Lord, is truly recognizing who he is. Imagine, for Christopher Lee, he'd only ever read The Hobbit. Simple little book, nice enough little story about a wee little fella who goes off and has fun with a dragon or something like that. I don't want to spoil it for those of us who haven't read it. But, and that was the story that made 
Tolkien his hero. That was the story that made him be in awe and reverence and have that fear response. Imagine now Christopher Lee read deeper. He read the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He read the other stories that Tolkien created to pad out that entire world. The more that he got to know about Tolkien, the more that he would be in awe, the more that he would revere him. And the same is true for us. The more that we come to see God, to understand God, to recognize who he truly is, the more the fear of the Lord will overcome us and the wiser we will be. We all want to know what life really is all about. We all want to be in the know. We all want to have wisdom, but we cannot be wise. We cannot be wise unless our wisdom is anchored in reality, unless our wisdom is anchored and flowing out of who he is. So let's ask ourselves, who, who is it that we pursue? Who is it that we listen to? Who is it that we want to inform us and teach us and instruct us and lead us along that path of wisdom? Who is it that really holds sway and influence and effect in our lives? Who is it that we want to know more about so that we might fear them more in that sense? Is it ourselves? In, in our world, the world's wisdom is that everybody needs to go on that journey of self-exploration, isn't it? That perhaps you've been to university or you will be going to university, but at some point around that time, everyone needs to go on a gap year. Ah, oh, the mystical gap year, where we go to discover ourselves to do unique things to us, just in exactly the same pattern as every person who has ever done a gap year before does it. That's the wisdom of our world, isn't it? That we need to pursue ourselves, we need to go deep inside, we need to explore ourselves to find out who we are and what, therefore what life truly is. Maybe it is a celebrity, as with Christopher Lee and Tolkien. Maybe it was pursuing that individual. Maybe you've got a particular passion or an interest or a hobby or something like that, a career that you're hoping to go into. And so you think, well, wisdom will be to go and to sit at their feet, to learn more about them and their history, to dive into their world and their life. And by looking at them or listening to them, I might grow and mature and be wise. I think there's an element of truth in both of those. Neither of those things are explicitly anti-Christian or anti the sentiment that we're getting at this evening. But if our primary pursuit is not God himself, then it's not wisdom that we're pursuing. It's not life that we'll find. It's what Adam and Eve found. It's curse. It's casting out. It's death, it's darkness, it's sorrow, it's suffering. Because if God is scrubbed out, if God is ignored, if God is removed from the picture, we cannot be wise. We cannot find life. Someone puts it like this. Blessed, fulfilled, flourishing, happy is the one who does not, let me just make sure I get this in the right order, walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, 
but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. Blessed, happy, fulfilled, flourishing. There's loads of different ways we could translate and interpret that. Is the one who doesn't seek after the advice of wicked folk. Or the attention and the adulation of sinners. Or the comfort and the familiarity of scoffers. But whose delight is in what? The law of the Lord. God's instruction. God's teaching. Sometimes we get a little bit hung up on that word as well, of the law of God. And we think, well, that means his rules. It's a strange picture, isn't it? That someone whose delight is listening to the rules of God. In the scriptures, the word law is, is, is bigger than the rules. The, the, the word law is about God's instruction and his teaching. And it's revealing something of the attitude, the heart of this blessed, happy, full, flourishing individual. That they want to pursue God. That they want to listen to his voice. That they want to do as Solomon did, rather than as Adam and as Eve did. I wonder if that is a description of you. I wonder if that is a description of me. Someone who is delight is to go to God, is to come to his word, his teaching, his instruction, is to have our reality broadened by understanding more and more of who he truly is. You can go elsewhere in the scriptures, you can Psalm 119, this extended reflection on how wonderful, how deep, how rich God's law, his instruction is. The various ways that we can come to it and it can build us up, it can edify us, it can strengthen us, it can lead us into light and life rather than darkness and death. You know, Jesus understood the Bible in that exact way, didn't he? In John chapter 5, Jesus was, if I put it moderately, discussing with some of the rulers of his day how they had the Bible as their source of direction, as their sort of, I'm all right, here it is, this is where I go for wisdom and life and light. But they were doing that in an ignoring God sort of way. This is what he says to them. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There was this wisdom banging around, knocking about, that they can find life apart from God. Now, they wouldn't have put it in those terms, would they? they? They thought very much that they were factoring God into the picture. They thought very much that God was part of their worldview. But Jesus says, these scriptures, this law, this teaching, this instruction that is supposing, supposed to be leading you to an understanding of who God is, what your world really is like, what you're really like, how that all fits together. It's all sewn up and meeting in me and yet... You do not see me. How often do we, in similar fashion, pursue wisdom? Oh, we love rules, don't we? We love simple, snappy, catchy things. Just tell me what I've got to do and I'll do it. Anything for an easy life. 
not trying to understand or, or, or wrestle with or, or factor in what, uh, what real life is like and how it's nuanced and difficult and fun all at the same time. How often do we think that we're pursuing wisdom when we're leaving God, leaving Christ out of the picture? I said earlier, there is no wisdom without God. I would go even more strongly in that direction. I would say here, Jesus is showing us that there is no wisdom. There is no life to be found outside of him. The Bible says that. The Bible says that uh, the fool says in their heart that there is no God. The fool says in their heart that there is no God. Why, why would we ever want to erase God? Why would we ever want to count him out from life? Stephen Hawking, a very famous physicist from the 20th century, said it like this. He said that heaven is a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. But that shoe on the other foot and said, no, the only reason that you do include God is because you're scared of a world without him. Professor John Lennox, like his namesake, the boxer, counterpunched and said this, atheism is a fairy tale for those afraid of the light. And the thing is, those of us who are guilty those of us who are ashamed, those of us who desire to continue in our rebellion and our insistence that God isn't who he says he is, would love to create a world in which he doesn't exist. Scared of the light, because the light exposes. A world with God in it, a world with Christ in it, is a world in which we are accountable for our actions and our attitudes our sinfulness and ourselves. That is why we concoct very often these worlds that lead to death because we simply cannot face the light of Christ which sheds light on our darkness. But brothers and sisters, there is good news, isn't there? And the good news is that the light has come. The light has come and the darkness does not overcome it. Christ has come. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has stepped into our world and he has revealed to us most fully and most glory, uh, gloriously the fullness of God. He's made his home amongst us in Jesus Christ. So if we are truly people who desire wisdom, what do we do? How should we live our lives? Back in our church building in Amford, we've got a little PA setup like this, only we've got a computer and a soundboard. Can you, I think there's one just out there. So if you wanna have a look at it on your way out down the stairs, please look to the right. And on the soundboard, there's loads and loads of volumes, sliders and knobs and faders, and they're all linked to different things. Um, 
this morning, I think, uh, it, uh, helping us with music, we had two guitarists plugged in. We had um, a couple of singers. We had a clarinet. We had a pianist. We had the preacher's mic. We had another microphone for those who were reading the scriptures and so on and so forth. And all of those sliders could be moved up and down so that the volume could be raised on certain things and taken down for other things at various points in the service. How should we live our lives if we want to be wise, if we want to know the best way to live, the truest way to live, the, the, the way of living that leads to life, not death, well, we need to do this. We need to turn him up and we need to turn all the other sliders down. We need to turn him up in our lives and we need to turn all the other sliders down. Because there are competing voices, aren't there? In our lives, there are competing stories and pressures. Folks who want to have our attention, who want to have our allegiance, who want to control how we see and perceive and understand the world. There are wisdoms of the age that want to lead us astray. Brothers and sisters, we need to turn those voices down. That might mean spending less time online social media, YouTube. That might mean not reading the newspaper as often or as thoroughly or as diligently. That might mean not putting as much weight and stock into the words of whoever it is that you hold in particularly high esteem. Tolkien for Christopher Lee or, or what have you. We need to turn those voices down. You know what that means for yourself. And we need to turn him up. It's sad really, isn't it? It's sad really, isn't it? That we tend to see the Christian life and coming to God and listening to God as snatching a few moments every Sunday in his company and in the company of his people. One day out of seven, and we scoff and we think, well, that's a bit much, isn't it? Not twice on a Sunday. We don't meet twice on a Sunday in Amford. It's far too much for us. Heaven forbid that we would gather together twice on a Sunday. Awful, isn't it? But we live our Christian lives as if, well, that's, that's a burden. That's a tiresome thing. That's, that's too much or that's enough, no more. We need to turn him how do we turn him up and others down in our lives? Well, I've got three ideas for us of things that if we want wisdom, if we want to perceive him to live in the world as it really is more, if we want to be led more and more into life, that we should value and cherish, pursue three things. His word, his people, and his sacraments. And we've got them with us this evening. His word, his people, and his sacraments. Jesus is coming, and the descriptions that we read of him, like in Hebrews chapter 1, you know, God has spoken in all of these wonderful ways in the past, but now he's revealed himself in the Son, is not to say that God's word is useless to us now. We read from Jesus that these are the scriptures which testify to him. 
Later on, after his resurrection, he was at pains to begin with Moses and work his way through the scriptures, through the the Psalms and the prophets and and all of the stories to explain, explain from them what he had done. We get God's word to us. Not as some think they require a fresh revelation from God in some wonderful, mystical, magical way every week or every day. But we get God's truth, his teaching, his instruction. The answer to Solomon's prayer in the palm of our hands, on the homepage of our phones, in our web browsers, where we get that. We should cherish God's word. We should seek him in it. Not just every Sunday, but each and every day. It's been a challenge that I've put out there this year in our church. What is the first voice that you listen to every day? I think so many people, the first thing that they do is turn on their phone. You may not have Instagram. You may not have Facebook. You may not have TikTok, but you have emails. And for some reason, the thing that you want to do at the start of every day is to check, Mark, are you a, is it time for confession? <laughs> Caught your eye a little bit then. It's to check the emails or to check whichever news agency that you trust, that you wake up and this is the world that you want to live in. I hate being legalistic about how we um, approach reading the Bible, but whose voice do we want leading us into each and every new day? For me, I want the Lord's voice. I want his truth, not the lies of this world. We need to turn him up in his word. We need to turn him up by being with his people. And clearly in this room, I am preaching to the converted. I'm preaching to those in the, the choir stalls. You hear, you value it. But do you value it? Because it is also very easy simply to turn up. Do you realize what a privilege it is for God to have placed you amongst others who know God, who cherish Christ, who have that gospel deposit in their lives and are keen to share it? There's a proverb, one of the pieces of wisdom that Solomon shared, iron sharpens iron. So a friend sharpens a friend. Do we build one another up? Do we value those people in the pews around us as folks who can lead us into real life? Or do we think, well, they're an odd bunch. They're a bit strange. But hey, they're the ones who go to church with me. So there it is. No, God intends for us to be in this weird and wonderful combination, concoction of people. That part of the demonstration of who he is and what he has achieved is bringing such a diverse group together with our different experiences and backgrounds and situations. You know what the the gospel manifest in your life and in your situation means. You know what the gospel manifest in your life and your situation means. And when we come together and when we share that, iron sharpens iron. God gives us his word, he gives us his people, and he gives us his sacraments. We're going to be celebrating communion in a very short moment. Next week in our church we're going to be celebrating baptisms. 
And to the world, they look and they seem and they feel like, like, I don't know, archaic, religious traditions. You know, why shouldn't they be done with robes and bells and chanting in languages that no one else understands because we don't understand them as they are. But here are things, here are elements given to us by God which help us to see, which help us to understand, which help us to feel the realness of the ideas and the truth which we hold dear. We are going to come together in a moment and we are going to eat bread, like literal bread. It's going to go into our bodies and it will nourish us. It will, if even only a tiny amount, give us life. We're going to drink juice of some description. It'll be red. And it won't just remind us of bloodshed, but it will be to us this thing which we can taste and feel the realness of what Christ has done. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, Jesus really did walk on this earth. He really did hunger and thirst and mourn and love and cherish and give and care for and die and rise again and ascend to heaven. He really is coming back again. And when all we do is talk, as I've done now for an extended period of time, sometimes that is all it is. It's like ideas and thoughts and philosophies. But God has given us his sacraments, baptism. We're going to go down to the sea and we're going to bury someone before rising them to life again. We are going to eat Jesus' body, his blood. We're going to drink his blood, his flesh broken, his blood shed because he really did live and die and rise again in our place. Don't neglect the sacraments. Don't neglect his people. Don't neglect his word. He is a God who wants us to be full of wisdom, to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, and we will never get there if he is taken out of the equation. So let's turn him up together as we turn our other voices down.